Let's open up the Word of God now to Genesis chapter 3. I'm currently in a Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 11 series in Heritage, and this is the section of verses that we're up to at this point. The text tonight is verses 7 to 13, which I will not reread. Verses 7 to 13. And I know in the bulletin I had indicated that we would read only a portion of the chapter, but changed my mind on the way here. Why don't we read the chapter in its entirety? Genesis chapter 3. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest he die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And now the text is verses 7 to 13. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, 
Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Thus far we read God's word. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the context here is so familiar that we really don't need to familiarize ourselves with it very much, but just some general reminders here. In Genesis chapter 2, we have at the end of it a record of life in paradise wonderful, blissful, perfect life that Adam and, G Adam and Eve enjoyed there in the garden. And it all changed with the fall into sin. And that's, of course, the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. Serpent comes to Eve, tempts her to eat of the very tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God said, ye shall not eat of it. Serpent tempts her to eat it. And we know the history there. She caves to the temptation of Satan. You can look at those verses and they give those beginning verses of chapter 3 so much instruction on what you might say, the science of temptation and how the devil goes about that applies very much to us today as well. So now Adam and Eve are fallen into sin and we come right away into our text, which begins with verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. There is a beautiful gospel word here in these verses. Here are fallen Adam and Eve, miserable, wretched, poor sinners. They're filled with fear and shame. They're trying to hide their sin before the eyes of God. 
And here comes the Lord, who's always first. He comes to them in his love and in his grace. He won't allow them to keep on going this way, but he seeks them, his fallen children. Let's consider this. Under the theme, Jehovah God seeks Adam and Eve. In the first place, let's consider seeking whom, and we'll notice some things there about Adam and Eve and what they were doing. In the second place, seeking what? That very idea and history and significance of the Lord seeking them. And then third, seeking with what purpose? Whom did Jehovah God pursue? Whom did he seek in his grace? And the answer that even the children could say right now is, of course, our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's the simple answer. The more involved answer is that Jehovah God sought, he pursued after Adam and Eve who were naked and filled with fear and who were ashamed. And what I want to do for the next few moments is take those ideas. They were naked and they were both fearful and ashamed and I want to unpack that for us and try to explain what that means. Adam and Eve were naked and afraid, filled with fear. Verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And you should understand by that, their eyes were opened, they knew that they were naked, And what that led to was a great fear that filled them. There is a connection between nakedness and being afraid. That connection is given by Adam himself if you drop down to verse 10 when he says to God, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I want to try to explain that connection between nakedness and fear. God, of course, created Adam and Eve, both of them, with physical bodies. And they used, each of them, their physical bodies in order to sin. Think of Eve for a moment. She saw with her eyes the fruit hanging on that tree that God had forbidden to eat of. And she used her very hand to grasp that fruit and take it unto herself. And she used her mouth to partake of the forbidden fruit and her throat to swallow it. She used, also Adam, her physical body, her very body as an instrument for sin and for lust. Now, those physical bodies that they had used in order to sin, they saw as naked, that is, without a covering, without any clothing. And the very body that they had used to sin, now without any covering for it, they felt that their sin was exposed before the eyes of God. 
And that's where fear comes in. Because they knew that the sin they committed was punishable by death. God said that in Genesis chapter 2. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. They knew that consequence. And knowing the punishment, which is death, they are now filled with terror. Their very body they use to sin, that body has no covering, and so they feel exposed in their sin, and they fear the punishment for that sin. Nakedness and being afraid. But there's something else about them. Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. That too, naked and ashamed. So when you read verse 7, and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked, you should understand that to mean their eyes are open, they know that they're naked, and that also led not only to fear, but also to this shame that they felt within themselves. There's a connection between nakedness and being ashamed. And that's given at the end of Genesis 2, verse 25. This is before they fell into sin. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And what's implied there is that after they fell into sin, they were naked, but then they were ashamed. So there's a connection between those two. And let me try to explain that a little more as well. Go back to Genesis 2, verse 25, and I'll just briefly reread that. Remember, this is before the fall. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Shame is one of those words that's hard to describe and define. I think we all know what It feels like to have shame in our soul, but it's a little bit harder to define. But shame, and now I'm thinking in this context now, shame is a disgrace that someone feels in their soul as a result of sin. When one's sin and their lust is exposed not only other people but before the eyes of God they feel within themselves disgrace that's what shame is now the Bible tells us that before the fall into sin Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed and that's because they had their physical bodies but they used their bodies only in the service of God remember they were prophets priests and kings And everything that they did with their mouth, everything that they did with their hands, where they went with their feet, everything they did with their physical bodies, they only did to the glory of God. So even though they didn't have a stitch of clothing on them and they had no covering for their body and were naked, there was no reason to feel that disgrace in their soul because all they did was to the glory of God with those physical bodies. But now that they've fallen into sin, it all changes. They're naked, but now they're ashamed. That very body that God had given to them, 
No, they did use in the service of sin in partaking of that forbidden tree. They used it as an instrument of their lust, their bodies. And not only that, but now that they're fallen, all that they too, Adam and Eve, all the way that they can view each other is with that same lust. And they can only use their bodies in the service of sin toward each other too. That very body that they used for their sin and lust is naked. They see that. They don't have any covering. They don't have any clothing. And they feel that this very body that they used for their sin and lust is being exposed. Their sin is before the eyes of God and before the eyes of the other one. And that's where they feel the shame too. They feel that disgrace in their soul of being exposed. So here they are, naked, afraid, ashamed. And what do they do? They try to cover it up. They try to conceal, cover up their bodies. And they do so with fig leaves. That's what we're told in verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked in the sense that we just said. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Must have been a tree or some trees in the garden, and they would use those fig leaves, the Bible says, and they sewed them all together so that they had an apron to cover at least a part of their body. And so here are Adam and Eve with their fig leaf aprons on. And you know, of course, why they did that. They're afraid of God's punishment of sin. So they tried to cover up the body that they used for that sin. And they're ashamed. They have that disgrace of soul because their lust has been exposed. So they tried to cover up the very body from which that sun, sin and lust is exposed. That's why they put on these fig leaves. What folly! The, these are utterly vain, these fig leaves. Did they really think that they could hide their sin before the all-seeing, holy, piercing gaze of God Almighty? That's folly. And it was folly, these fig leaves were, because their view of sin was so superficial, it was so shallow, they thought that if they could cover up their very physical body, that they could cover up their sin. But in reality, of course, sin goes a whole lot deeper than the body. It's the corruption of one's whole nature. It goes down into the inner depths. Did they really think that by covering their body they could cover their sin? Such a shallow view of sin is folly too. And just plain the fact that they thought that something they could do, something they could sew together, that they could bring that to God 
and that they could hide something from him and actually conceal their sin because of a covering they brought? That is pure foolishness. They're adding sin to sin to sin. We get on our fig leaf apron. Anytime we think that something we do covers our sin before God's sight. You have it? Husband, wife, that you feel that same fear and that shame that Adam and Eve felt because of some sin in your marriage. Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something you said. But some sin in your marriage and you reason to yourself, if I can just from here on out care for my spouse better and be a more compassionate husband or wife and be more involved in the marriage and in the family, well then maybe things will sort of cancel out with God. That must mean something to him, doesn't it? And maybe it can sort of cancel out the sins that I did and conceal them before his face. The good things that I do. We just got on our fig leaf apron when we think that way. Sometimes that's the way it goes with us that we sense that fear within, that we have that disgrace in our soul. There's something in our life that we've done or just the day-to-day sins. And we reason in our mind this way, well, I'll just get busy with other things so that I can sort of just forget about the sins that I've committed. Maybe I'll work, 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 or I'll plunge myself into alcohol, or I'll entertain myself to death, or get on social media, or hang out with friends. Whatever I can do to sort of put what I've done out of mind. What we would never say, or probably even never think, but is subconscious, is... If I can put my sin out of mind and if I can get so busy that I forget about it, well, then God forgets about it too. Have you ever played that game with a little boy or girl where you tell them to cover their eyes? That little boy or girl says, Dad, I can't see you and you can't see me either. That's the way little children think. If they cover their eyes, they think you can't see them either. And of course, they're wrong. But how often don't we do that? If I can cover my, sin, my eyes to my own sins, God does that too and sort of puts it out of mind. We put on our fig leaf apron very often, don't we? And it's so very foolish. So here they are fallen, wandering sinners, naked, afraid, ashamed, hiding things. And who comes but the Lord himself? Isn't that beautiful? The Lord God comes to them. He seeks them in his grace. And that's what this text is all about 
they would not, they could not ever come to him. But in love, he comes to them, his fallen children. Let's get before us. If you have your Bible open, you can look at it with me. Some of the facts in history here of Jehovah God seeking Adam and Eve. And we start here with verse 8. We read, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Interesting that Jehovah God was present in the Garden of Eden in some way. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how he was present, but he manifested himself somehow in a way we know that he could be heard, and it was quite possible that he could be seen in some way too, that he manifested himself in some form. But at any rate, here he comes in the garden, and his voice is heard. Get the impression, by the way, too, that the Lord had done this more regularly before the fall into sin, that he would come to the garden and he would speak to Adam and Eve and that they would enjoy rich fellowship with him. What a thing that was. Get the impression that he probably did this more often, but be that as it may, here he comes. Literally, the text says, in the wind of the day, and you must imagine soft blowing breezes going through the garden. And here's the Lord's voice. And what do Adam and Eve do? They hide amidst the trees. They must have immediately, when they heard the Lord's voice and knew he was present there, they must have immediately sensed these fig leaf aprons aren't going to be a covering for us. We have to get among the trees and hide ourselves there. And here they're just loading another sin on top of everything else. It may not be fig leaves this time, but it's essentially the same. They're still trying to hide themselves and their sin before the sight of the Lord. They're attempting to cover up what they had done. Now the Lord speaks. Verse 9. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Where are you, Adam? Now God, of course, the little children, you can say this, know this. The Lord knew where Adam was. He wasn't asking this question because he didn't know. God knows everything. And he knew exactly where they were. But God asks this question, and this is something that you notice as you go through the text. What God says and the questions that he asks, he's applying a teaching method here for the sake of Adam and Eve. The Lord is heading them in a certain direction and he has a purpose with everything that he says we'll get to that in the third point but just the point now that the question he asks here also is a teaching method that he's applying to adam and what the lord is really asking is not so much where physically or geographically are you amongst the trees but he's asking why 
are you hiding there in the trees? That's what the Lord is getting at. And Adam now answers. Verse 10, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. When God said, where are you? That word entered right into Adam. And when God's word goes out, it never fails at its purpose. And it will do whatever God commands it to do. And when God says, where are you? That goes straight into Adam and he must answer that. He must. And he does. And he understands the Lord's question according to its design, not merely where are you among these trees, but why are you hiding among these trees? And Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We've already explained that so we don't have to go back to it so much, but I have this physical body. I used it as an instrument for my sin and lust. And since this very body that I use for sin is exposed without a covering, feel exposed in my sin and lust before your eyes. And that's why I'm afraid and I hid myself amongst the trees. That's what he means. And the Lord says, now, in reply to that, verse 11, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? If I may just explain the idea of that, the Lord is saying, Adam, you were naked and not afraid before this, and now you're naked and afraid. What explains that change, Adam? Did you eat of that tree? which I told you not to eat of? Is that what happened? Again, the Lord is leading in a certain direction. He's applying the teaching method here in the question that he asks. And what do Adam and Eve do? They start blaming other people. They don't want that personal responsibility, and they start making some admissions, while well, I did this, but an admission is not a confession of sin. An admission and confession are two different things. They're admitting to doing something, but then they're immediately deflecting the blame somewhere else. By the way, once again, they're not using fig leaves this time, and they're not hiding among trees anymore, but they are still trying to conceal their sin, and it's essentially the same thing. They're just doing it by shifting the blame. Adam does it this way. Verse 12, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. You detect in there an indirect blaming of God himself. The woman whom you gave me, God, she's the one that gave me to eat and I ate. He didn't say it in so many words, but he's indirectly blaming placing the blame upon God. If you had never given me this woman, then she wouldn't have given me of this forbidden fruit to eat, and I wouldn't have done it. What a foolish thing to try and blame God. And of course, he blames his wife. She's the one 
that gave me to eat. And then the Lord turns to Eve, verse 13. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. There they go again, shifting the blame. Serpent, he beguiled me, he deceived me, he's to blame, basically, and not me. Does that sound familiar? It does certainly to me. How many times in our life don't we admit things? And again, an admission is not a confession. We admit things, and then we flick it off somewhere else to that person. We blame even God indirectly sometimes. When we complain about our life, well, I wouldn't have fallen to this sin if I didn't have these struggles in my life and these circumstances. And this person that just troubles me, it just vexes me. And yes, I reacted the way I did and I caved to temptation, but it's because this person is in my life. And what we're really saying is God who put this set of circumstances of this person in my life is to blame. How foolish we can be with that too. And sometimes for us as well, we blame people so that a wife or a husband might say, sure, I lost my temper, but did you hear what my spouse said before I lost my temper? You would have understood. And we come up to two children where one boy clobbers his brother with a toy on the head, and why did you do that? Well, he, you fill in the sentence, we're good at making admissions. And we're very good at blaming others, whether it be God, a person, or the devil for tempting us. So that gets before you some of the history and facts. But don't forget the main thought of these verses. The Lord is seeking his children. Don't turn that around. Don't ever turn that around and say that Adam and Eve first sought God. They couldn't. They wouldn't ever first seek him. They're wholly corrupt, totally depraved. And look what they've been trying to do. They've been trying to cover up. They've tried to have been hiding their sin. God comes to them first and that's always how it is. Genesis chapter 3 takes the heresy of free will and drops it, as it were, on the cement so that it falls and breaks into a million different pieces. Genesis 3 will have nothing to do with the heresy of free will. God comes to his children, and he does so first. And right here, already at the beginning of the Bible, you have a trumpet blast that lasts all the way on every page until you get to the last chapter of Revelation. And the trumpet blast is, salvation is of the Lord, and it's nothing of man. It's all of God. Isn't it so very clear here, beloved? 
That's how it always goes in history. You might say we have a principle here. Children, do you remember when David fell into sin with Bathsheba? And he murdered Bathsheba's wife, Uriah. He had blood on his hands. Did you know that David lived without confessing his sin for some nine months, at least the period of Bathsheba's pregnancy? He lived in unconfessed sin. Did he come to God first? And you say, oh, of course not. He couldn't. He wouldn't. He's wandering in sin, a lost sheep. God came to him first, and he did so through the prophet Nathan to confront him in his sins and to address his sins. God pursued David. And today, too, when there is a man or woman or teenager or child walking in a way of sin, God's the one who first seeks that wandering one, that impenitent sinner wouldn't and couldn't ever seek God first. God seeks him, her. And now don't just think of people that you might know among God's children that are wandering in a way of sin. But I want this to apply to each one of us as God's children tonight. Every single day, it can be said that to some degree we wander in sin. You know that as well as I do. That's our experience. And every single day we have our subtle little attempts at covering and hiding and blaming you know too that you would never and could never come and seek God first but he comes to you first and he does that especially on the Sabbath as you sit under the preaching confronting you with your sin and addressing your sin he seeks you what a comfort but the main thought here is not only that God is seeking his children, but that he's doing it in his grace. That's evident when you look at the whole chapter 3. When you get to the latter verses, what's God doing to them? He's revealing to them the promise of the gospel. And then when you come all the way back to the verses of our text and God is asking these questions and he's coming to them in the garden, you understand God is doing this in his love and in his grace toward them. And that God comes in his grace is evident too in this. He doesn't seek them with a thundering voice in the midst of lightning and smoke and flames surrounding them, how does he come? In the light breezes of the day. He comes in his grace to his own. And if you needed anything else, it's evident that the Lord comes in his grace and in such great love 
And that comes out of that name, Lord, all capital letters, you know. It's not just God here, but consistently, Lord God, Jehovah. And there is an aroma that pours out of that name, which is so sweet. It's aroma of grace and love. Our Belgic Confession says just that same thing. Article 17, we believe that our most gracious God in his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus thrown himself into temporal and spiritual death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to seek and comfort him when he trembling fled from his presence, promising him that he would give his son who should be made of a woman to bruise the head of the serpent and would make him happy. That's our confession. Seek some in grace. In the gentle wind, in grace he seeks Adam, whom he will not let go. And he begins that seeking by calling him and saying, where are you? And that's the question that he asks of his people in Dune Protestant Reformed Church this very evening. Each of us, including myself, God's people who are wandering sheep, every week in the preaching, graciously and lovingly seeking you, never let you go. And as it were, in the gentle wind, he says, where are you? Where are you? What love? Who can measure it? But let's tie up a loose end because we really haven't gotten to the purpose for the Lord seeking them in this manner and for seeking us in this manner. What purpose does the Lord come in pursuing, have in pursuing his children? Three things. You can follow them with me. First, Jehovah's purpose in seeking them in this way is to bring them eventually to see that their coverings, their self-made coverings, are no good, and they are not sufficient. This is the message that he will bring home to them through this process and what he says and what he asks. Your fig leaf aprons, Adam and Eve, they're worthless, they're vain. And, and when you try to get among those trees and you try to hide from me in that way, that's worthless too. That's a futile attempt. It's not going to work. My holy gaze sees it all, all. And that's what he brings us by his sovereign grace to see too. Whatever you're doing in your life and whatever I'm doing, trying to cover up sin and shift it somewhere else and hide it before the gaze of God, it doesn't work. He sees it. He sees everything for us too. And then to go ahead in the Belgic Confession to Article 23, 
it has this language that we must not presume to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours. And then later on in the article, and verily, if we should appear before God relying on ourselves or on any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas, be consumed. That is strong language. That's the first purpose of Jehovah, though, to show them through process and teaching your coverings are no good. Second, the purpose of the Lord is through these events eventually to bring them to see their sin and to acknowledge it. Do you remember when I was talking about fear and shame at the beginning of the sermon and that they were filled with both of those? You must not think of that as a good thing. That was not a sign of God's grace operating in Adam and Eve. The fear and the shame that they were experiencing were just sins added to what they had already done. That's how we ought to think of that. Some people, some theologians say, well, the fact that they were ashamed and that they were afraid means that there was some goodness left over even after the fall into sin, that there was some goodness in them. Those theologians, of course, are entirely wrong. There is no goodness left in man after he fell into sin, no goodness at all left in him. And certainly this is not a sign of any such goodness either. They're not truly sorry for their sins at that point. God must bring them there. The way he speaks, the questions he asks, to bring them to see their sin for what it was so deep, so serious, that it provoked God himself and to bring them eventually even to acknowledge that sin before God's face. That's what God is working here. And doesn't he do that maybe even every single day for you and for me, but surely every day under the preaching on Sunday brings us wandering sheep every day and every week to see once again our sin, that it is, there's a gravity there, and that we really have rebelled against him at his throne and what we have done. He brings us to see that by his grace, and he brings us also all of his work to acknowledge our sins before him. Third purpose of the Lord, besides bringing them to see their coverings are not sufficient, to see their sin and to acknowledge it. And third, he's going through this whole process to bring them to see that there is a covering that is sufficient. You see, beloved, they must be brought to a point where they see that as far as they are concerned, it is hopeless. As far as they themselves are concerned, they must be brought to see that left to themselves, they're doomed to perish forever and ever. And they must be brought to see there is absolutely no covering that they can possibly bring 
to cover their own sins. Only then do they see the need for a Savior. Really see the need for a Savior. And that's the way God works with us too. He takes you, he takes me, his sheep, and he brings us down to our knees. When it comes to you and comes to me, as far as we're concerned, it is hopeless to perish everlastingly in hell. And there is no thing that we could ever do to cover our sins in his sight. He brings us to see, I need desperately a Savior. Remember that name in the text? Jehovah, he provides a sufficient covering. Verse 21, peek forward. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. A covering that he could provide for them only by way of death. There has to be shedding of blood. And they're pointed to Jesus Christ, albeit in a shadowy way, but pointed to him. And then I want to read briefly one more time from Article 23 of our Belgic Confession. Listen, and it is beautiful. Relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone which becomes ours when we believe in him, this is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread without following the example of our first father Adam who trembling attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. There is for us a covering that is pure and white and perfect. It's the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a covering and what a blessed comfort we have. Amen. Our Father in heaven, Press by thy spirit that comfort home to our hearts. And be pleased for thy own here in this sanctuary to show us anew in this very night our sin, to make us to know it, bring us truly to acknowledge it. Grant that we may know our Savior, and see him by faith, in whom alone is all of our comfort in life and in death. We thank thee, Lord, more than words can express for that all-sufficient covering. Hear us in his name. Amen.